I am fired up about preaching after that kind of announcements. Glad that you're here today. Next Sunday is such a big, 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 big day for Friend Day. And uh, we've been working on this for weeks. You found out a couple weeks ago, our shepherds have, have, uh, have already committed to invite 92 people for next Sunday. Our staff last week, our ministers, uh, committed to invite 91. And then we've been polling our deacons and small group leaders, and they have committed to invite a total of 425 people. And that's about, that's about half of them. So my question for you this morning is who will you invite? How many will you invite? Because this is, this is the week. This is the time to start handing those invitations out. It's a really easy invite, especially when you got one of these cards on you. You know, we're having a friend day at my church this Sunday, and it would really honor me if you'd come and be my friend. It's just that simple. The cool thing is it's an easy invitation with eternal consequences. So let's pray about what's going to happen in this place next Sunday. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to share good news. And we pray, Father, this week that you would embolden us, Father, to be out and to be inviting people to experience what we experience every Sunday. And Father, we pray when they get here next Sunday, Lord, that we will all be ready to greet every guest. Whether our guests show up or not, there's going to be lots of people to greet and to love on and to welcome. So use us to your glory. May this be a first step for many people in coming to Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, I hope you have your journal. We're finishing the book of Nehemiah. I love these journals. We will do this again, I promise you. Uh, but this morning, we finished this incredible book, and God's people are on what I call a spiritual roller coaster. How many of you love roller coasters? I love a roller coaster. If you take me to Six Flags, that's about all I'm going to do. And roller coasters are nice, but let me say this. They're a good place for a little entertainment for three or four minutes, but they're a terrible place to live. Can you imagine living on that 24 hours a day? And yet spiritually, so many of us, and God's people, obviously we'll see in Nehemiah, go from an incredible high to really terrible lows. And you know what that's like. You know, one day you feel so close to God, you just feel like, you know, you can touch Him. And then the next day, you feel so far from Him. You escape some of the addictions that have plagued your life, and then a few months later, you find yourself caught back up in it. So many of us fight this roller coaster. And in Nehemiah, man, it just happens so quickly. It's like this Texas oil tycoon. Um, he was on his deathbed. Everybody thought he's about to die. Preacher goes to visit him, you know, just trying to pray over him. And he said, Preacher, if, um, if for some reason I survive this and God heals me, then, then I'm going to give the church a million dollars. Well, lo and behold, a miracle happened and the dude was healed. But the church didn't get a million dollars. So the preacher finally saw him and said, Hey, I thought I remember this conversations we had. And man, God's done a great work in your life. Just hadn't quite seen it yet. And he says, Oh, well, uh, I guess that just goes to prove how really sick I was. Well, sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We feel like, man, I'm on this high, but in the next moment I've even forgetting, forgotten my commitments. And guys, that's what's happening here in Nehemiah. You remember back to chapter 10, not only they committed to keep the law, they've signed a document saying they'll do it. And today we'll get to a very, very different point. But let's start with this incredible high. It's found in chapter 12. 
And this is where they dedicate the wall. And guys, this is so exciting. This is one of the great scenes of all Scripture. This incredible high. You see, the wall has been completed. You remember what the critics had said? Even if a fox jumps on this wall, it won't survive. Remember that? And now God's people are lined up on the walls. They're actually walking on top of the walls they have built in two grand choirs. You just got to love that. And if you go back to Jerusalem today and you take a tour, they will still point out to you periodically where Nehemiah's wall has still survived. And so look with me in the passage here. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. I mean, it is quite a scene. Listen to how the scene closes out in verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I don't know if you caught it, but the word joy is used five times in one verse. Man, they are celebrating what God has done. Now, let me show you a picture of this real quickly. Because, uh, and I don't know how, you probably can't see this really well. But, but in this picture, you see them lined up on the wall. If I were to show you, though, a picture of Jerusalem, the wall starts uh, rather close, and then it begins to spread out, and it finally ends at the Temple Mount. So, so here's the, the picture of this celebration. This is so cool. You've got two choirs. Nehemiah's leading one, and Ezra's the other. And one goes up on this wall, and one goes on this wall, and then they got these instruments, and they got all these things to celebrate, and they sing back and forth to each other, and then they all walk the wall to the temple, and they join their voices together in the temple of God. It's a powerful, powerful scene. And here's what I learned from this, because we must learn to celebrate well. I mean, you see the time and effort that these people are willing to put into this celebration. They need to mark this day. And a lot of effort has gone into that. And I'm just so thankful. I just want to say something here. To be a part of a church where we seek to celebrate well. Guys, I I know it looks effortless to those of us in the audience. But I'm telling the people that lead our worship put an awful lot of time into it. I mean, it looks so good because you don't notice because there's not mistakes. And I really appreciate Jeremy and I appreciate the worship team, appreciate our tech people, appreciate the Tarodes and Laura Dockery who've helped make this just a beautiful place to worship. And that kind of time and effort is priceless. You know, I mean, some of us can remember growing up in churches where there was very little effort put into the service. And if you were a song leader, you were on the front row five minutes before picking out your songs. And they might have something to do with the sermon, they might not, probably not. And I love to be a part of a church where we celebrate well. We're just like they did in Nehemiah, man. They put their best foot forward. And I hope you appreciate that. And this morning, I want us to, to do what they did in Nehemiah. 
I want us to sing a song together, but we're going to sing it from side to side. So everybody stand up. Worship teams can come up here, and here's what we're going to do. We're singing one of our favorite songs, Our God, He is Alive. And just as Nathan mentioned in the welcome this morning, my brothers and sisters, we have a lot to celebrate right now. I feel like Landmark's at one of the most healthy places we've been in a long, long time. God's bringing us new Christians almost every week. We're seeing new families come to be a part of our family. There's just a great spirit. And and this morning, we want to celebrate it. And so what we're going to do is this side, you're going to be Nehemiah's choir, okay? This side's going to be Ezra's choir. It's better than sheep and goats. Can can you appreciate that? Okay. But what we're going to do is Nehemiah's side is going to sing the first verse, the whole verse, by yourself, without you guys. Then you guys are going to sing the second verse, and then we're all going to join together to sing the third verse together. Think about how good God has been. Think about that we know and experience that God is alive. Let's sing together. Well... Let's just be honest, we're getting to Nehemiah 13, which is the last chapter in the book, and I would just tell you, I wish it had ended in chapter 13, uh, chapter 12. If we had ended in chapter 12, we could have closed the book and said, and they lived happily ever after, but that's not the way it happens. It reminds me of one of the biggest blunders in the presidency of George W. Bush. Some of you can remember this picture as he stood on the aircraft carrier and they had this great sign about the Iraqi war behind him, mission accomplished. And yet it became such an embarrassment later because the Iraqi resurgence came and we were in a big trouble. And his PR people regretted that even to this day. And that's what sort of happened to Nehemiah. You get to chapter 12 and there's this incredible celebration. And then if you're going to read the story, Nehemiah has gone back to King Artaxerxes. We don't really know how long. Many scholars say maybe a year. And then he's come back. And listen, everything they had committed to in chapter 10, they have broken. I mean, it's just a really big mess. It's like the Proverbs say, the cat's away, the mice will play. No, that's not really in Proverbs, but it should be, right? What it's saying is, you know what? I mean, Nehemiah's gone, the leader's gone, and then everything begins to fall apart. And guys, Nehemiah's mad. Let me, let me just go ahead and show you a verse that will sum up how he's feeling, okay? You don't want me to get this, to this point today. Verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Is that not one of the best verses you've ever heard in the Bible? That gives us some good permission here, right? Guys, Nehemiah finally loses it with these people. I mean, he's been so calm and so collected and so good the whole time. And now he walks back in this deal. Now, you know, it's pretty funny because his contemporary Ezra in his book pulls Ezra's hair out. But in Nehemiah's book, Nehemiah pulls their hair out. That's, that's a pretty fired up preacher, don't you think? I see some of you, it looks like I've already done it. But that's exactly what happened here. Now, why is Nehemiah so mad? It's because they've compromised their commitment to God. I mean, everything they agreed to, they've compromised. In fact, there's four major areas they compromised on. Let's look at those in Nehemiah's rebuke. Go back at the beginning of the chapter to verse 4 with me. This, this, this will blow your mind. Now before this, 
Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and who was related to, to Tobiah. Anybody, Tobiah, anybody remember that name? I mean, Tobiah's been the enemy. He's been the critic. He's been the one trying to stop this whole thing. The priest, it seems like, his daughter has married this dude. And look how bad it went. Elisha prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previous put the grain offerings. I mean, I won't go on for that whole thing. But look what happens. Of all people, Tobiah has moved into the temple. That's like, you know, giving the Taliban an apartment in the Vatican. I mean, it's just absolutely beyond measure. And Nehemiah cannot believe it. So the first thing is they compromise the house of God. I mean, listen, the temple was the residence of God on this earth. Now today, we are the temple of God. And and, and that's not just us as individuals, but we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as a church together. And when we compromise the church of God, when we compromise in our theology or our ethics, it brings reproach to God. So it's so crazy that Tobiah is living in the temple. Now look what, um, look what Nehemiah does as he finds out about that. Look in verse 6. While th- this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, prepared for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. I brought them back, these vessels of the house of God, with grain offerings and frankincense. That remind you of any story in the New Testament? Jesus shows up, man, and the temple's a mess again. And he gets a rope, he gets a cord, makes a whip, he turns over tables and he runs them out because how dare that they fool with the house of God. And that's what happens here. They compromise their commitment to being the place of God. And then we go a little bit further, go to verse 10 and 11. We'll see another compromise. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Because in this story, they've compromised their commitment to God. What's he talking about here? They're all by law required to give tithes and offerings. And they don't. And so what's happened to the Levites? The Levites and the singers, that's pretty cool. You worship team people might love that. The Levites and the singers are supposed to be supported by the tithes and offerings. And they're not getting paid, so they're having to move out of Jerusalem to go live in the suburbs to try to grow some food. You guys, let's just be honest. When we begin to compromise our faith, practically, one of the first areas we compromise is on our giving. Many times, many of us, the first thing we do when things get tight or we start being lukewarm is we say, you know what, I'm not going to give generously. And the Old Testament standard was a tithe. New Testament is you give free will from your heart. In the New Testament, I think it'd be higher than a tithe. And yet here's when they compromise. 
And I ask you, where are, if you compromise in what you're giving to support the work of God? And then maybe the second area in our day where we begin to compromise here is just in our attendance. Where once we were an active part of the church and wouldn't miss for anything, we slowly but surely back further and further away. And Nehemiah confronts this. And then we get to another compromise. Go with me to chapter 13, verse 15. In those days I saw Judah, in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought with them from Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. What are they doing here? They're compromising the Sabbath. This is supposed to be a holy day for God's people. And Nehemiah, if you keep reading here, man, he confronts this really, really strong. Because this is the day that's supposed to be set aside to the God. Now, I don't think we can make a, a really strong argument that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. I don't think those two things necessarily translate. Probably on Sunday in the first century, many people might have had to work. But on the other hand, I think we've all seen what's happened when Sunday has become nothing special. Many of us can remember when there were blue laws and no store could open on Sunday. And then we can remember when they started opening after church. The store might be open from 1 to 5. And now today, you go over to East Chase and everybody's open all day long. Many of us can remember the day when youth sports would never, ever be played or practiced on Sunday. And now many of you have experienced that it's still practiced every day of the week. And I would say to you, if, if there's not something special about this day, we're going to lose something. It was the, the French agnostic Voltaire who said, if you want to kill Christianity, you must abolish Sunday. Well, because this is the day that we meet to gather, to pump each other up, to remember what Jesus had done for us. This needs to be a special day. You need some boundaries on this day so that you can celebrate. And then we see one more compromise. Verse 23. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Those are three of the long-term enemies, nations of God. They abused um, God's people when they're coming out of Egypt. And there's always been this bad relationship. And these guys are marrying them. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So here's what happens here is they start intermarrying with people who don't share their faith. And because of that, they don't even know the language of God. They can't listen or read the law of God. They can't participate in the worship of God in the temple. And Nehemiah's pretty fired up about it. Now look at how he confronts it. Look with me again, and let's go to, to verse um, 25. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters or their sons or their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then he gives us an example. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? What's he saying? Even Solomon 
even when the most spiritual man, the wisest man who's ever walked the earth besides Jesus Christ, even Solomon got messed up by marrying people that God had told him not to marry. Now next week we're going to start our chameleon series and Solomon's going to be example number one. What's a chameleon? A chameleon is this incredible animal that can completely change colors according to their surroundings. And if we're not careful, guys, we can do the same thing. Christians are supposed to be a city on a hill, a light for everyone to see. But if you begin to compromise your companionships, in particular here, compromise in your marriage, we lose our distinctiveness. And so um, this is really um, rebuked by Nehemiah. And let me just say today, I think that we need to be careful about this. If, if someone as great as Solomon can be misled because he marries some pagan wives, I mean, Solomon, Solomon, the guy who builds the temple, ends up worshiping idols because of compromised marriage. Let, let me challenge you today. I'm just going to tell you my, my, my belief. Christians should marry Christians. Let me read a passage to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I think it's pretty powerful. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, where he talks about, you know the the phrase in in Scripture about being unequally yoked? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light and darkness have? Now, in this context here, he's talking about lots of areas. If you put yourself in a business position where you have to compromise your values to be partners with that person, you don't need to be in that. If you put yourself in a work environment where it's impossible for you to live for Jesus, he says you you, you can't do that. You'll compromise. And then probably the greatest example of this is marriage. You say, well, you know, buddy, um, you're trying to make me feel guilty because I married someone who's not a Christian. I'm telling you, you probably could give us the best testimony of why this is a bad idea. Because you've experienced it. And you see, when you're in marriage, I mean, gosh, we all know this. That is the very closest person you are to in life. There's no way that person does not impact you. So for our young people here today, I want to challenge you. The one most dangerous thing you can do is marry someone who does not share the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. It's an incredible compromise that may lead you to compromise other things. And so Nehemiah, man, he he confronts this. And and today we need to confront the same thing. So what, what do we learn here from Nehemiah? We learn that we must confront sin. It's so easy for us to just turn the blind eye to sin. But thank God we've got a leader like Nehemiah who won't do that. Now, why is sin such a big deal? What, what is sin? Well, the word sin literally means to miss the mark, okay? It's just to miss the mark. Well, what is the mark? What's the target, guys? We were created to be in the image of God, to, to be as close as possible like God. Now, what is sin? God didn't just come up with a list to make you miserable. Sinful things are things that are unlike God. 
God cannot lie. Lying's a sin. God could not be unfaithful. Adultery's a sin. God cannot do lots of things. So when I sin, I step out of the realm of God. Now here's the deal. God is a holy God. He is so much different. And God cannot compromise and be in the presence of sin. And that's why the Bible says sin breaks your relationship with God. And that's why we needed Jesus so badly to take care of our sin problem. And guys, we as Christians, as a church, we've got to be willing to confront sin. I, I, love, I love the balance found in Jesus. He was full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus confronts sin. What, what does he say to the adulterous woman? I don't condemn you, grace. Go and sin no more truth. We cannot be the place that says it's okay to do whatever you want to do. As God's people, we are the ones who are willing to say, everyone may cheat on their taxes, but not us. Everyone watches sexually explicit material, but we're not going to do it. Everyone around us is compromising their sexual ethics, but not us. Too many people today depend on alcohol to take the edge off or not be anxious or just to be able to be nice at home, but not us. Everyone sleeps with their girlfriend or boyfriend outside of marriage, but not us. Now, I'll be honest, there are so many churches today that I feel like you could go to and sin would never be confronted. And one thing I love about Landmark is I don't think that would happen. But we must be those people who are willing to to confront when sin enters the camp. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. Because we live in a day where this is so very challenging. Because the standards of the world no longer match the standards of the church. At one point you probably could sort of expect culture to go, we may not all live this way, but we think this is the right way to live. No longer is that true. I love what a writer named Vance Havner wrote. Today, the world has so infiltrated the church that we are beset by traitors within more than by foes without. Listen to this line. Satan is no longer fighting churches. He's joining them. My strong. Because we are the people who are willing to confront. Why? Because if you see me in sin, the most loving thing for you to do is to lovingly come to me and restore me. The most unloving thing you can do is let me go down that path of sin and break my relationship with God and hurt the very mission of God. So Nehemiah, I mean, he tackles it head on. And let's just stop here for a second and say, Nehemiah was an amazing leader. I mean, as we've studied through this book, I mean, many people use Nehemiah as a textbook on leadership. He was prayerful. Oh, he's prayerful. He was organized. He was passionate. He was a motivator. I mean, knew how to delegate. He knows how to confront things when they need to be confronted. I mean, Nehemiah is really quite the amazing leader. But here's where I think chapter 13 leads us. So stick with me for these last five minutes. This is the most important thing we're going to say in seven weeks. Nehemiah, as great as he was, was not 
enough. He just wasn't. And you know, if you, as you read through this book and you get to chapter 13, basically in the midst of all this craziness, Nehemiah keeps saying to God, God, I sure did try. I'm looking at three passages with me rather quickly. Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 14. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds. God, just please remember in the middle of this mess, Lord, that, that I, I've been trying to do the right thing. Look a little bit further in verse 22 and listen to what he says. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. God, I know this is a mess. Please spare me. And then the last verse in the book, Nehemiah 13, verse 31. Remember me, oh my God. Remember the good. You you see, as strong and capable, as talented and gifted, as spiritual as Nehemiah was, Nehemiah ends this book in disappointment and frustration. How frustrated is he? He's pulling people's hair out. So here's the good news from Nehemiah 13. So there can't be any good news in this. Oh, there is. Nehemiah 13 points us to Jesus. Nehemiah 13 ends this way because as you remember with our first week we said, the next stop in Scripture is the birth of Jesus. There is no communication after Nehemiah until we see Jesus in the manger. And and Nehemiah is an answer to Jeremiah's prophecies about God's people coming back to the Holy Land. But many, many of the prophecies of Jeremiah are not fulfilled because they found their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Nehemiah teaches us no matter how talented we are, how hard we try, even how much we even know Scripture, on our own we can't get off this roller coaster. I mean, it's the history of God's people. I mean, they get really close to God, they rebel. They feel bad. They go back to God, they, 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 they go in the opposite direction constantly. By the time we get to Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, about to share the gospel, says, there's none righteous, no, none good, no, not one. And so Nehemiah leads us to go, the only way we can get off this roller coaster, the only way we can stop living this way. The only way the cycle is not repeated is through Jesus. Let me tell you three things if you want to get off the roller coaster. Because, you know, we read these Old Testament stories and we almost go, well, that's the way we're supposed to live. I can really be pure and holy one day and rebellious and sin the next day. And again, lots of us have been on that roller coaster. Am I I here trying to add guilt to you? But here's what I am. is trying to give you hope. In in Jesus, we don't have to ride that kind of roller coaster. Let me give you three reasons. First of all, you need to let the love of Jesus invade your heart. You see, the difference in the new covenant and the old covenant primarily is the new covenant seeks to change you from the inside out. A law system says we're going to change your outer behavior. A grace system says, my love is going to so touch you. You're going to be so invaded by this love that you don't deserve that your response will be obedience. 
Because the highest motivation to live your life for Jesus is not fear, it's not obligation, it's love. Second, let the power of the Holy Spirit change your life. That's what we have that they didn't have, is that every Christian has the power of the Holy Spirit, the very power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. And so if you end up sort of like Nehemiah, frustrated with the highs and lows, where you finally just sort of say, I can't do it, you're right. That's a true statement. I can't do it. But what's true is, with the Spirit's power, you can do it. Because we have the power of God living within us. And then third, surround yourself with godly friends. Because, again, one of the differences in, in the Old Covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31, when he prophesies about the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you were born into the family of God. You didn't really have a choice. It was more an ethnic thing. But the difference in the New Covenant is you are reborn into the kingdom of God. You do have a choice. And because we have a choice, man, we ought to all be sold out. And so one of the things that helps us overcome this roller coaster is not simply falling in love with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, but a group of people who are also committed to live in the ways of God. And so we help each other. So this morning, we're about to sing what we call a song of invitation. And this is an opportunity for you, if you're on this spiritual roller coaster and you're tired of it, here's the good news of Nehemiah. Oh, it's real. It's real. But the good news of Nehemiah is this is not the end of your story because it wasn't the end of God's story. And this morning, you need to confess sin. If this morning you need to say, you know what, I'm on this roller coaster and it's driving me crazy. Because I'm telling you, after I've been on the roller coaster, there comes a point you just want to get off. You just want to quit. There's too many highs, too many lows, too many ups, too many downs. Then finally you say, it's just not going to work. And so this morning, if you find yourself there and you need us to pray for you before we walk out of here, why don't you come right now while we stand together and sing?